This morning we are in Matthew's Gospel, as we have been for about two and a half years. In fact, uh, my rough calculations tells me that this is the 134th sermon in the Gospel of Matthew over about two and a half years. And in a few months, we will complete this wonderful journey as we've been transformed by the systematic verse-by-verse study of the Word of God as we've understood much more of the sovereignty of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. What an amazing journey it has been. And certainly we are all spectators of His grace because of what the Lord has taught us through the Word. This morning I speak to you about the agonies of Gethsemane. Before we look at the text, imagine with me for a moment, imagine a blind man from birth trying to describe a sunset to a group of people who have also been blind from birth. That, of course, is an impossible task, and I feel that that is a picture of the task that is before me this morning, to try to describe to you that which I cannot comprehend. And certainly, you will not be able to either. And yet, the Holy Spirit knows this. This is another inscrutable mystery of God, the suffering of the Savior, the one who was perfectly God and perfectly man. And even our ability to comprehend the heinousness of sin And the heinousness of hell is really like an earthworm trying to somehow comprehend the molten core of the earth. The little worm knows much about the minuscule realm of his experience. He knows the shallows of the topsoil. And he fears little more than the robin. (laughs) Likewise, as mere mortals, when we think of The agonies of Gethsemane, it's exceedingly more superficial than even that little earthworm's understanding of what the core of the earth would somehow be like. And while the Spirit's unique vocabulary in the original language helps us to comprehend more of what went on with the Savior, And when we combine that with our own trials in life, it helps us to at least know a a, a little bit what, shall we say, the molten core of sin and hell and suffering is like. But nevertheless, we are merely singed by those thoughts. But the Savior was utterly immersed in it all. Like no other man who has ever lived, Jesus suffered in life and he suffered in death. And it's interesting to me that no place in the New Testament will you read of Jesus laughing. You won't read of him cracking jokes and pulling pranks and playing little games on people. And that's not to say that that isn't appropriate for us in our life, but It is to say that it's interesting that what we read of Jesus, 
in the infallible record is nothing about frivolity and, and kind of external kind of fun and joking around. But we read much about him grieving, about him weeping, about him lamenting over the hideous effects of sin in life and the inconceivable consequences of sin in the eternal death of hell. Truly, as we read earlier in Isaiah 53.3, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You see, friends, he was able to, to conceive in his omniscience the inconceivable. He was able to see the true condition of men's souls and the true reality of a hell that awaits all those who refuse to repent and to believe. He was able to fully grasp the heinousness of sin, to grasp the, the wrath of God that sin ignites. And he was able to fully, therefore, comprehend the suffering that would be required to pay the penalty for all whom the Father would give him. So, here we take our shoes off once again as we enter into a holy place, a place called Gethsemane, which, by the way, means olive press. Let's read the text. Follow along. I'm beginning in verse 36 of Matthew's 26th chapter. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. I believe this morning that our hearts will be best served if we approach this sacred text by examining three lessons that we see that are really in stark contrast between the Lord's character and his conduct and that of the disciples. As Jesus now prepares himself for the cross, he 
prepares us for his sufferings and also prepares us for our sufferings in life, though ours are not even remotely worthy to be compared to his. And so by God's grace and through Christ's perfect example, this morning we will learn how to face trials for our joy and with joy and for God's glory. So he will teach us the priority of three things. Number one, prayerful communion. Number two, submissive surrender. And number three, courageous obedience. Now let me give you the context here so that we understand where we're at. Jesus' three-year public ministry is now over. Israel has had an opportunity to look at the Lamb of God that God has placed before them and to scrutinize their Passover Lamb. And indeed, He was found without blemish. He now moves inexorably towards the cross to be the final sacrifice for sin. He has, just a few hours earlier, transformed the Passover of the Old Covenant into the Lord's Supper of the New Covenant, a new memorial to Himself. And Satan, as you will recall, has entered into Judas, and Judas has been dismissed to go and to continue to prepare his betrayal plot with the leaders of apostate Israel. And Jesus has warned his disciples that they will desert him. And yet the disciples remain incredulous, thinking that there's absolutely no way that such a thing would occur. And foolishly, they remain confident in their own strength. And now it is Thursday, the day before his crucifixion. It's probably around midnight. And in the upper room, after Judas has been dismissed, they have sung a hymn of thanksgiving and of redeeming hope. And now they have left Jerusalem. They've gone down into the Kedron Valley. They've crossed over the brook Kedron, which is now flowing crimson because of the blood of hundreds of thousands of animals that have been slaughtered upon the altar in the temple that now flows into the brook. And Jesus now has crossed over that crimson red brook as he makes his way with the disciples up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. So now they have ascended to this place. And in verse 36, we read that Jesus came to a place called Gethsemane. What a fitting place. For even as the great stones of an olive press would crush the fruit to extract the precious oil, so too the Savior will be crushed by the excruciating weight of satanic temptation, taking upon Himself the sins of the elect, and worst of all, being crushed by the unspeakable horror, the prospect of being forsaken by His Father. So they come to a place called Gethsemane. This would have been a garden that belonged to probably another believer. I have been there. Some of you have as well. Some of the olive trees that remain there today have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. But it was no doubt a familiar place of retreat for Jesus and the disciples. In John 18, we read that Jesus often met 
there with his disciples. And at the end of verse 36, it says that he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. In other words, men, I want you to guard the gate here. I I need to be left alone. I have great matters to tend to before my father. And friends, here we come to the first great lesson on suffering. First of all, we see the priority of prayerful communion. Sit here, he says, while I go over there and pray. Now, friends, I want you to think of this. There's an amazing contrast here. The incarnate Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, knows full well the weakness of his humanity and and his desperate need to depend upon his father as he goes into battle here with the enemy. He, he recognizes the frailty of his flesh and, and, and he certainly fears the impending torture and death. And certainly he fears the temptations of Satan. But not so the disciples. They remain indifferent to it all. Apathetic to the spiritual war that is raging around them. But Jesus is very aware of all that is going on, and he recognizes, as always, his need to depend upon the Father. And so we see here the priority of this prayerful communion of the Lord. In fact, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 5, verse 16, we read that he would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And beloved, might I say to you that unless you have the habit of fervent prayer, your life will make little difference in this world. You will just merely forfeit the rewards of heaven, so many things that could have been yours that won't, because you really never depended upon the Lord. Your faith will be as weak as your flesh. Your family will be a disaster. Your ministry will be a bore if you even have one, and you'll have no appetite for the Word of God. And in times of great testing, you will very quickly collapse in a heap of fear and despair, consumed with self-pity and defeated by depression. I think of the words that are so true in that wonderful old hymn that we sung for years. What a friend we have in Jesus. And one of the phrases says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, the disciples remain oblivious to their need to go before the Father, to depend upon Him for all that the Lord had even warned them. And indeed, Jesus had told them, according to Luke twenty-two forty, to pray that you may not enter into temptation. But like many of us, they remained smug in their self-confidence, deceived by their pride, self-assured, in fact, so much so that they would just disregard the Lord's admonition to pray and even go off to sleep. You know, I must say, I see myself here, and I'm sure you see yourself here, if you're honest. What a graphic reminder, isn't it, of of just the arrogance and the indifference that we tend to have towards the power of the flesh and the power of temptation. 
and how pride blinds us to our weaknesses and how self-confidence tends to mask our vulnerabilities and how sin can deceive us into thinking that somehow we're invincible. Yes, Lord, I've got it all under control here. I can live above the fray. I really do not need the discipline of prayer in my life. Because I, after all, I'm me. Yet the Lord taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, with his heart racing with intense anguish, Jesus goes alone into the presence of his Father for mercy, for grace, and for strength. The Son of Man knows all too well that only fervent prayer that pleads for strength will be able to pull him through. And he knows, as we should know, that this only can occur in private communion with our Heavenly Father. So he leaves the disciples and... uh, Luke's gospel tells us that he goes about a stone's throw away. And here in verse 37, it says he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, being James and John. And it says that he began to be grieved and distressed. Now, first of all, may I say that he did not take Peter and James and John because he was lonely and he needed company. Nor because he needed their counsel. Ha ha. But he took them because they were the leaders of the eleven and he needed to teach them a lesson, a lesson that they would learn and learn well and certainly be able to teach to their disciples and ultimately to all of us. In fact, dear friends, in times of intense anguish, there is absolutely no human being that can offer the solace that our soul requires. You'll find strength only when you commune with the Father alone in ardent, passionate prayer. And frankly, only those who have despaired of life itself understand that kind of communion. I know it well. And in verse 37, we read that he began to be grieved and distressed. You see, we must understand that the time for him to become sin. And to be estranged from his father was closing in. All of the agonies of the magnitude of sin and and the fact that he would bear the sin is weighing down upon his holy head. And Satan awaits him once again to finish, frankly, what he had tried once already in the wilderness. We know that in the wilderness, he tempted the Lord three times at the beginning of his ministry And now, probably three times again at the end, even though that's not explicit in the text. However, it's interesting. Jesus made a very curious statement in John chapter 14 and verse 30. A statement that he made in the upper room just after dismissing Judas, whom Satan had entered. Here's what he said. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. And he has nothing in me. By the way, he has nothing in me is uh, uh, it it would be tantamount to us saying that he has nothing on us or nothing on me. Uh, That was a Hebrew idiom that basically 
they understood as saying that, that, that Satan can claim no charge against me, no charge of sin against me. And therefore, he was unable, he would be unable to hold Jesus in death and so on. So certainly Satan would continue to do all that he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Because if Jesus goes to the cross, Satan is defeated and he knows that. So Jesus knew that Satan was going to come upon him once again. Beloved, I have to stop for a minute. Can you imagine what it would be like going one-on-one with Satan? I can't. But Jesus was not left disarmed. And by the way, nor are we. He used the divinely powerful weaponry that is ours, namely the word and prayer. He uses that to counter Satan's attacks. And by the way, this is why it is so important for us to know the word of God, because, friends, Christians who are weak in Scripture, who are frail in in doctrine, will be defenseless in battle. So Jesus goes alone into his dungeon of grief here, a time now of, of torment that we will never know. A time of excruciating darkness. In fact, later Jesus said to his captors in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Isn't that interesting? This hour and the power of darkness are yours. In other words, it's as if he's saying, this is your time. Do with it what you will. My father has ordained this horror, but this too shall pass. Some of us know the horrors of spiritual darkness, the agonies of satanic attack. Some know what it feels like to be in the shadow of death and the blackness of sin engulfing you and like, a, like a dense fog. In fact, many of us would know what Jeremiah meant when he lamented in Lamentations 1.12, Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. Indeed, dear friends, those are times when we pray to die. Yet I must say that the cumulative sorrows of all the saints that have ever lived are nothing more than a raindrop in the ocean when compared to the agonies of our Savior. The original language helps us have a little better grasp of what the Lord was experiencing. At the end of verse 37 and 38, it says that he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Deeply grieved, a term in the original language, paralupus, it begins with the, the, the little word pere. We get our word uh, perimeter from that or periphery from that. And it, it basically has the idea that he was he was surrounded with grief. He, he was overwhelmed with grief. He was encompassed with sorrow, a sorrow that encircles you and you're unable to escape. That's the idea. And it was so severe that he would have died were it not for the father's intervention. Many people have died from overwhelming grief, even from overwhelming anger or fear. So Jesus is deeply grieved to the point of death. 
And he's asked his disciples now to remain and to keep watch with him. But obviously, they're indifferent to that. And I think there were some other reasons as well that they slept. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in verse 39, he says, And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face and prayed. Well, friends, again, I pause because here is revealed a, a sample of what was in his heart and the intense nature of his communion. Because he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And friends, here again, we, we, we get just a little glimpse of how, how utterly revolting, how abhorrent, how nefarious, how abominable sin is to a holy God. You see, sin is to his holiness what, what acid would be to our skin. It is a wretched contamination. And yet the Holy Lamb of God was about to become the very thing that he loathed. Can you imagine that? In fact, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.29, as the Spirit of God speaks through the Apostle Paul, that he, referring to God the Father, made him, referring to Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, friends, this was a hideous defilement. It was one so severe that the Holy Father and even the heavenly hosts would have to turn away in repulsion. And this is what grieved the heart of the Lamb of God. This was the prospect that was literally killing him. Luke, the physician in his gospel, gives us more insight into the pathos of, of this particular moment. In Luke 22, verse 43 through 44, we're told that an angel from heaven appeared to him, referring to Jesus, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. What an inconceivable reality. And by the way, this is a rare but well-documented con condition. It's called hematidrosis. And it occurs because of intense anguish or some kind of physical strain that causes the subcutaneous capillaries under the skin to, to dilate and to burst and then to mingle with perspiration, causing Blood to ooze through the pores of the skin. This is how severe was the agony of Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us being in agony. Being in agony. An agony for what he must do for you and for me. Charles Spurgeon addresses this in a very poignant way. And I quote, Here Jesus stands before us peerless in misery. None are molested by the powers of evil as He was. As if the powers of hell had been given commandment to their legions, fight neither with small nor great, save only with the King Himself. Child of God, I must pause here 
and ask, what must we do when we come to our moments of anguish, though they be nowhere close to what the the Lord experienced? Well, the answer is simple. We must imitate the Savior. We must fall on our face alone in prayer and commune with the Heavenly Father to be able to say to Him, Father, be merciful to me. Yet, not my will, but thine be done. Because, dear friends, it is only in the chamber of prayerful solitude that you will ever find comfort and strength for your soul. And this is precisely what Jesus did. And again, to think that his disciples slept through all of this. Now, you might think, well, you know, they were tired. I mean, after all, it had been a long day and they're in a nice, quiet place there. And and um, it's in the middle of the night. Friends, it was anything but quiet. In fact, in Hebrews five, verse seven, we read that Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, because of his piety, because he was devoutly submissive to the father's will. The father heard him as he cried out before the Lord. And again, he cried out and with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. By the way, it's important for you to understand a footnote here. Save him from death could be better translated. Save him out of death. Because Jesus was not praying to the Father that, 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 that He wanted to avoid the cross, that, that He didn't want to die. He was praying that He would be raised from the dead. He was praying for assurance of resurrection. Father, help me to avoid temptation that I might not sin so that I can be the perfect sacrifice and not be entrapped in the grave. So, Luke 22 and verse 40, he says, remain here and keep watch with me. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's what he tells the disciples. But again, the attitude is kind of one of, ah, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. And beloved, may I may also say to you for a moment, I really want you to hear this. Do you realize that Satan and his minions are seeking to destroy Everyone who names the name of Christ right now, today, in your life. Are you asleep? I find it interesting how many Christians seem to think that the battle's over here. The battle's not over. We're in the thick of it. I think of 1 Peter 5.8. And by the way, as I read this, think now, Peter slept through all of this and he was chastened for it. He was admonished for it and later chastened for it and grieved over it. And this was just the beginning of of his as well as the others um, um, denial of Christ. But later, Peter would write this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Isn't it great? Peter learned the lesson, didn't he? And I hope we've learned the lesson. So first, the Lord teaches us the priority of prayerful communion. 
And three times in this narrative, we see that he falls on his face before his father, pleading for perfectly deserved mercy and strength to resist temptation, to be able to survive, to be able to obey. And it's fascinating that here in the Garden of Gethsemane, while the disciples are asleep, he's crying out to his father. By the way, it's interesting, too, that this is the only place in the New Testament where we read him stating that it was my father. He's praying to to his father. He says, my father, as if to somehow emphasize his desperate need from the only one who could help him. In fact, in Mark 14, 36, we understand that he even cried out, Abba, Father, which was the Aramaic term that would be equivalent to our English term, Daddy. He's crying out, Daddy, help me. My father, help me. This is the pathos, dear friends, of the scene. As Satan offers Jesus deceptive yet enticing reasons to somehow abandon the plan of redemption, to disobey his father's will, the son of the living God in inconceivable agony screams out to his father, Father, my father, daddy, help me. Again, this is a scene that begs language. So not only did Jesus acknowledge his utter dependency on his father, demonstrated by his prayerful communion, a priority for all who undergo severe testing. But secondly, we see the lesson of submissive surrender. Notice in verse 39, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. In essence, Jesus is asking, Father, if, if there is another way to satisfy your justice, if there is another way to appease your wrath, if there is another way to save sinners, may we pursue that way. You see, by now, the prospect of becoming sin on our, on our behalf, the prospect of enduring the cross and being forsaken by His Father, was literally killing him. This was the cup that he wanted to see pass from him. By the way, the, the, the concept of the cup was always a symbol of divine wrath in the Old Testament. And yet this was a cup he was willing to drink. I want to remind you that neither the Romans nor the Jews killed Jesus. The Father did. And Jesus willingly laid down his life with a submissive surrender in fact, the Lord Jesus told the haughty Pharisees in John 10, beginning in verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. What a wonderful statement. But his ultimate submission was to his father. And he surrendered his will to his father's will. Is that the heart of your prayers in the midst of your agony? You see, he knew that the Lord would cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him, as we read earlier in Isaiah 53. And yet he would willingly now lay down his life for the sheep. He would voluntarily and by his own authority stand in the sinner's stead. 
He would, as Isaiah 53 tells us, willingly bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. And yet, despite the intense anguish, he he refused to yield to temptation. Because remember now, he came to do his father's will. That's what consumed him. That's what should consume us. In fact, in John 14, 31, we read Jesus saying, I love the father. And as the father gave me commandment, even so I do. And friends, again, especially those of you that may even today find yourself in some fiery furnace of testing. I hope that you are literally living in the secret closet of prayer, communing with the father. Submissively surrendering your will to his. Because again, there will be no other way for you to survive your ordeal. You will find consolation in no one else, not your pastor, not your husband, not your wife. As much as we would want to give and as much as we would be there with you and for you, your soul longs for something far beyond our capacity to give. And beloved, we must understand that because of Jesus' submissive surrender, He became our faithful High Priest, our great High Priest, who is able, according to Hebrews 4, to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. And we know biblically that his grace is always sufficient, right? Isn't that a wonderful truth? According to 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. What a wonderful truth that is. So Jesus returns from his private communion only to find his disciples sleeping. In fact, it's interesting. Luke 22, 45 tells us that they were sleeping from sorrow. And that helps me, I think, understand a bit more what was probably going on. It was probably more than just physical exhaustion, even though that would play into it. But probably they were emotionally and spiritually exhausted as well. I'm sure their conscience had been convicting them of their sin. Remember their proud ambition that would cause them to continue to argue with one another as to who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. No doubt the Spirit of God was bringing conviction to them. Certainly they had to be depressed at some level over the prospect of the Lord dying. They didn't understand all that was going on. They were confused. They were afraid. And like so many times, they did, I believe, what we tend to do. Escape into sleep. Things are just so difficult. Give me a sleeping pill. Give me something to drink. Maybe a little wine. A little something that will help me sleep so I don't have to deal with this. Rather than being vigilant and awake and going on our face before the Father and crying out for all that we need to understand and to do to glorify Him in the midst of our crisis. 
You see the difference? And that's what the Lord admonished the disciples to do. And indeed, we all should pray in submissive surrender. So already they're beginning to desert their master, even as the Lord had predicted. And in verse 40, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. He goes on to admonish them in verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, here is a spiritual wake up call. He's in essence saying, wake up, men. Don't you see the battle? Don't you see the enemy all around us and and you're trying to escape in sleep? Oh, yes, your spirit indeed may be willing to be obedient. You've convinced yourself of that. But that's not the issue. It's your flesh that is weak. You need help here. A help that only the father can give. This is the tragic reality of most Christians. We become overconfident. We become smug. We become self-righteous. And a certain indication that that is the case. And you can ask yourself this question. Those kind of people do not have the habit of prayer. People who are desperate for the Lord's mercy and grace and power in their life will have a habit of prayer. It will be as natural to them as eating and drinking. It is a proud person that sleeps his life away. We underestimate so often the power of the enemy. And in so doing, we overestimate the weakness of the flesh. And like the disciples who had been warned repeatedly, we tend to be indifferent to the enemy. We, we get lethargic and we fail to be vigilant in prayer. And as a result, we end up falling victim to sin and to Satan and we suffer defeat. And friends, all you have to do is look at the carnage of Christian lives, prayerless lives, and you see it everywhere in every church. And in every family. So in verse 42, fearing again that his strength would not be sufficient. Jesus goes the second time into the furnace of testing. And once again, he is left all alone in in the weakness of his humanity to do battle with the foul fiend and to contend for our salvation. And once again, he submissively surrenders to his father's will. He says, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And then in verses 43 and 44, again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And again, as I said earlier, though we can't say for certain, there were probably three waves of satanic assault against the Savior, even as there were in the wilderness at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And he probably used the same type of strategy, because as we study the enemy, we see that he basically uses the same strategies just in different ways. John MacArthur offers an excellent observation at this point. Here's what he says. And I quote, at the first great episode of temptations in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus to demand his rights first for food, then for protection and finally for sovereignty over the world. Now he tempted the Son of God again to demand his rights. 
Jesus did not deserve to suffer, much less to die. He deserved honor, glory and reverence, not the cross. Why, the devil perhaps whispered in Jesus' ear, should the author of justice be submitted to such gross injustice? Why should the creator of life be submitted to the ignominy of death? He called Jesus to revolt against God and thus disqualify himself from being the sacrifice for sin and the destroyer of Satan, death and hell. End quote. But again, even with such temptation, Jesus clings to the hand of his father. An important lesson that we should all learn. And by the way, may I remind you that prayer is never twisting the hand in the arm of the father. Nor is it somehow giving the father information that he doesn't really seem to have. As if somehow we can offer him some insight that he needs, and when he gets the right insight, he'll do what he really needs to be doing. Friends, that's a blasphemous thought. But true prayer is submissive prayer that cries out for mercy and power to remain obedient, even if it costs you your life. It is coming before the Father and saying, Father, in the midst of my great anguish, I plead with you for relief. I plead for mercy. I plead for strength. But Lord, if it is your will for me to endure this crucible of grace, I will willingly do so for your glory. Help me to be obedient in the midst of all of it, that people might see the power of Christ and the power of the gospel in my life, that you might be glorified and that I might experience joy even as I go to the stake. Folks, that's the essence of true prayer. So we've seen the Lord in prayerful communion and submissive surrender. And finally, as we close this morning, we see the lesson of courageous obedience. At the end of verse 45, behold, he says, the hour is at hand that the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. In fact, in verse 47, we we read that while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Friends, think of this. The Lord Jesus now rises from his face of prayer and with great courage and fortitude and power and resolve, he says, come on, guys, arise, it's time to be going Let's go and meet the enemy. Let's meet the enemy head on for the glory of God. It's as if he's saying, Father, it's time. As promised before time began, it's time to redeem the elect. It's time for me to go and do your will that you might be glorified. It is time now for me to stand in the sinner's stead. It is time for me to fulfill the law, to be the propitiation of divine wrath. To be the appeasement of your justice to redeem sinners so that there can be a royal priesthood that will honor and glorify you throughout eternity. So here the Lord Jesus Christ gives us a living example of the psalmist's words in Psalm 27 beginning in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?
The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Oh, dear friends, what a Savior is ours. And I challenge you this morning, again, in times of severe testing, depend upon the Father. Make it a priority in your life to fall on your face in prayerful communion before Him. To willingly submit your will to His. To surrender your life to His will. And then with a single-minded determination, you rise off of your face. You wipe the tears off of your eyes. And by the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead... You face the enemy and you do the Father's will. You decisively commit yourself to a biblical course of action and you do it, even if it takes you to a cross. This is the heart of courageous obedience. This is how we face trials for our joy and God's glory, even as Jesus did. And we're reminded this as I close this morning in Hebrews 12 too. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May God be glorified through his word applied in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that these glorious truths will transform us into mighty warriors of the faith. Thank you for the power that is ours through the triune God. Thank you for prayer. May our wills be submissive. May our lives surrender completely to you. And Lord, may we experience the wonderful joy of courageous obedience as we serve You for Your glory. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.